This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. This is the uh, fourth Sunday of Advent, and we're in an Advent series that we've just called Peace. And so this is the end of peace today. Uh, Hopefully it's the beginning of peace. Uh, We have some resources out at our resource center across from the cafe uh, that are on Christmas. One is not on Christmas, but it is on peace. It's called Real Peace. So I'd certainly recommend that to you as something, as a book that's been formative in this series. Um, And so we are going to look today, if you'd open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 4, Peace and Our Fears. If you don't have a Bible, in, under the seat in front of you, there's a tray under the bottom of the seat. You could look at page 490, and that'll show you where we are. So let's, let's pray, and then we'll jump into this today. God, we today come to you, and we pray uh, that we could bring you all the unsettled places in our hearts, all the unknowns, um, all the troubles, the burdens, the fears that we bring today. We simply ask that we could come before you and put them at your feet, and that you would show us Christ and his glory today, that there would be trust and hope and rest for our souls today uh, because of Jesus. Uh, so we pray for this, Lord. We, we just confess that we're needy people, and uh, we need you, and we thank you that you're gracious God, and you, you, uh, you pour out your mercy upon us, and so we ask for it now, Lord. We pray that your word would speak to us. Give us ears to hear, and give us hearts to respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Christmas and our fears. I, I, I read an article about holiday fear this week, and... Um, and there was just a list of fears that I was unaware of. I mean, I'm, I certainly understand fear, understand holiday fear, uh, and why I don't mention any of these to mock them, because you may have one of these fears. I, I, nonetheless, they were completely new to me, most of them, that there are whole categories of fear. I don't know if you knew this. There are entire categories of fear that are associated with Christmas and that actually have names. And uh, so, for instance, if you have cellophobia, that is the fear of flashing Christmas lights, the fear of lights, period, but the fear of flashing Christmas lights. So if you have that, please do not come to Frisco Square at night. That would be the worst nightmare for sure. It'd be terrible. Um, a festi- uh, let's see, festivalisophobia is the phobia of the entire Christmas celebration. So if you have that, uh, well... We'll pray that this you make it through. Uh, Malia, uh, boy, some of these are so hard to pronounce. Malia grisophobia is the fear of Turkey, the bird, not the country, but uh, the fear of Turkey. So I think that's fear of gobble gobble turkeys, not like dead turkeys being cut to be eaten. But I'm not sure. So there's that one. Uh, Crickophobia is the fear of church services, and so you're doing well and. Uh, Shout out to those listening to the podcast, but those fear of church services. Uh, Sisonophobia is fear of kissing under the mistletoe. I think it's just fear of kissing, but fear of kissing under the mistletoe, which depending on the person, we've probably all experienced that fear, and that could be a healthy one. Uh, Fear of kissing under the mistletoe. (laughs) Familiophobia, which is really not a joke at all. Familiophobia is fear of your family. So if you come from a family, uh, perhaps that could be funny if you have like Cousin Eddie coming for Christmas vacation. But, but if you have a family where you've been harmed, 
uh, then that is a real, a very real legitimate thing. If you have family members that have uh, harmed you, abused you, taken advantage of you, rejected you in some way, that is a, a very real thing this time of the year. And lastly, I cannot believe this is real, but uh, gobphobia uh, with a GH, I don't know how you say gobophobia is the fear of presents or gifts. So if you have that, I'm going to give you my address and you just forward them all to me and I'll relieve you of your fears and take whatever presents or gifts you get this year. Well, some of those, the fear of presents, some of those, if real, are somewhat uncommon. But fear is associated with Christmas. As a matter of fact, fear is a theme that runs through the Christmas story in the Bible. I don't know if you knew that or not, but in Matthew 1, for instance, an angel appears to Joseph, Matthew 1. 20 verse uh, 20 and 21, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So understandably, when Joseph considered following through and marrying pregnant Mary, he faced fear. I mean, what would life be like for them as a couple living in a society that would reject them for pregnancy out of wedlock? Who would possibly believe their story? And so when Joseph looks ahead and considers the future life of shame, of rejection, and of judgment, there's no wonder that he would be fearful. And so the first words out of the angel's mouth to him are, do not fear. As a matter of fact, this is the most common command in all of Scripture. Over 300 times, one author said, I didn't count, but said 365 times, the Bible commands people in various contexts not to fear. Most common, common command of Scripture. Now, why is that? Well, the reason is because we are all fearful. We all have any number of fears in our lives. Consider the angel's appearance to the shepherds in Luke 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So there is this glorious lighting up of the sky at night for the shepherds, unexpected, startling, fearful, otherworldly. And the angels command them, do not be afraid for what I'm going to tell you is good. Our appearance has good news attached to it, not bad. Do not fear. Jesus has come. In a few verses later, the entire sky lights up with a, with a whole company of angels. And they say this, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those who, with whom he is pleased. So he says, do not fear, this is good news, peace has come to earth in Jesus. The announcement of the coming of Christ, the announcement of Christmas is the announcement in part that there is a peace, there is a person of peace, the Prince of Peace that has come to shatter our fears. 
One of my favorite Christmas lyrics in a song that we sing sometime around this time of year is called A Little Town of Bethlehem, which was written by someone as he oversaw, uh, as he looked over from a hill and saw the town of Bethlehem and contemplated Christmas. And I love this line, yet in thy dark streets, mean the streets of Bethlehem, yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light, the hope and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. The coming of Jesus fulfills the hopes of mankind, the hopes of humanity, but also answers the fears of humanity. Or take this, we sang this this morning, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Here's the opening to that hymn. Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. It's saying, come Jesus, and not only does Christ's death and resurrection free us from sin, but the, the, the intention of it is to free us from fear as well. And that's why author Anne Voskamp writes, Advent is about the coming of God and the end of fear. Advent is about the coming of God and the end of fear. The Prince of Peace comes to restore shalom. Shalom is, is the word for peace that represents things as they ought to be. Life in, in the Garden of Eden where things were perfect. The Prince of Peace comes to restore what was lost in the garden. He comes to be our peace, as we read earlier from Ephesians 2. He comes to make peace between us and God. He comes to give us peace, and as Rob preached last week, to make us peacemakers, to share his peace with those who live with anxiety and brokenness and conflict and, yes, fear, coming to bring peace to our fears as we wait for him to return on the day when he will make all things new and restore all things as they ought to be in a new heavens and new earth and where there will be no more fear at all except perhaps fear of God, the awe of almighty God. One of the clearest examples in all of scripture, and it's not associated with Christmas, but one of the most clear examples in all of scripture of God bringing peace, of Christ bringing peace in the midst of unrest is the story we're going to look at this morning in Mark 4. Now, again, I'm aware it's not a Christmas text, but the theme has been peace and how Christ brings peace. And we see that powerfully demonstrated in this story of Jesus calming a storm. And I think it's a story that while you may not relate to the specifics of being in a boat in a storm, we all can relate to the heart of the story. It connects with us, especially at this time of year, I believe. So I'm reading Mark 4 verses 35 through 41. Here, this is the word of the Lord for us today. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, "'Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing?' And he awoke." And rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, 
and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? In a commentary on the book of Mark, commentator David Garland says that when you read a story in the gospels, you should ask three questions. And actually, if you don't hear anything I say today, but this, this will serve you for the rest of your life. Hopefully what I'm going to say right now will serve you for the rest of your life. But what I'm, what I'm going to say about interpreting scripture, this will always serve you. He says, when you read a story in the gospels, ask three questions. Here's the first question. And this will be the outline for today. Here's the first question. What does it reveal about Jesus? The gospels are not about you. They're not about me. They're not in the first place about our application of truth. They are about Jesus. So we first of all ask, what do we learn about Jesus? Secondly, we ask, what does the story reveal about the human predicament? What does it say about us? What does it say about the human predicament? Number three, what does it reveal? Uh, what solution does it present for the predicament? So what answer or solution does the text give to the human predicament? What does it say about Jesus? What does it say about the circumstances and the lives we find ourselves in, our predicament? What does it say about the solution? So I'm going to walk through those three because I think they're great interpretive questions about this story because you can easily miss the purpose of the story if you don't ask the first question is, what does it say? What does it reveal about Jesus? Well, the text tells us that evening has come and that he is exhausted. If you read the whole chapter, you'll find he has been teaching all day and he's so exhausted that he falls asleep on this boat. Verse 38 says, but he was in the stern asleep on the cushion and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He's so tired that he is sleeping in the middle of a serious storm. Now the message of Christmas is about God becoming man to live among us and to give his life to bring us back into relationship with God. Jesus had to be fully God and fully man to reconcile God and man. That's the message of the incarnation or of Christmas. He had to be fully man. And so the very human baby that was lying in a manger uh, cried as a human baby, contra away in a manger, which says no crying he makes. He cried, he was human. And in this situation, Jesus grows fatigued from the emotional and physical demands of a day of teaching. The first thing we learned about Jesus in this passage is that he is human and he is fully human such that he grows tired and is so tired that he can sleep in the middle of a storm. And that's good news because he had to be fully human to bring us into relationship with God. But ultimately what the story reveals to us is about the power of Jesus. Because the context is in verse 37, a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat. 
And this was common in the Sea of Galilee that a, a windstorm could suddenly uh, arise and the, the disciples who were fishermen would have been familiar with that. It is the carpenter who is asleep and it is the fishermen who are panicking at this time uh, because that tells us that they would have been aware of storms suddenly coming. This one is so ominous that even they, the seasoned fishermen, are panicking. They are filled with terror because water is breaking into the boat. It is filling up. And so they have a very reasonable conclusion. We're perishing. They, they're panicked and they wake Jesus up and, and they, they, they startle him. Do you not care that we are perishing? He's sleeping through the entire thing. And so he, they wake him and he rebukes. The word the text uses is, is that he rebukes, verse 9. He awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea. That means he scolds the wind and the sea. He reprimands it. Jesus speaks to the elements like you might speak to your disobedient toddler, trying to bring some order where there is sort of chaos. And he demands that the wind stop. And the text says that nature obeys him. The wind ceased and there was a great calm. Just his word causes the wind to stop and there's a great calm. The, the, the word could be translated a dead calm. What that means is with just his speech, a killer storm stops in its tracks and that everything is still and motionless and quiet. And there is a dead calm. It means that the water looks like glass. All wind has stopped, all waves have stopped, and it is a tranquil moment on the sea, from death to peace in a moment with just his words. And how do the disciples respond? Well, verse 41, they are filled with great fear. The calm is actually more alarming to them than the storm when they thought they were going to die. This is actually more awe-inspiring to them than the storm. And they start speaking to one another and they say, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Verse 41. This is impossible is what they're saying. How can this be that the, the storm is instantly stopped? Who is this man? Jesus. That is the text, that is the question of the text, and it leads us to ask the same question because that's the point of the story. The point of the story is who is this man, Jesus? So far in Mark, Jesus has been revealed as one who heals sick people to show he is Lord over sickness. He's Lord over our physical bodies. He has cast demons out of people to show that he is Lord over the powers of darkness, Lord over Satan. But here, this shows he is Lord over nature, over the powers of nature, over the elements of nature. And no one has that power but creator God. 
That is what's being revealed. He has the power that only God Almighty has, that he can direct nature, that he can intervene in what we would call an act of God and by a real act of God, stop it all. And it's not just that he has power over nature. This is something that we're distanced from a bit in our culture, but he has specifically power over the sea. And Mark's original readers would have read this and that would have meant something significant to them because the Israelites, like all ancient people, viewed the sea as the place of chaos. The sea represented unpredictability, as this story shows. It represented human vulnerability. The sea was completely uncontrollable. The sea was completely unmanageable. And when a storm like this one arose, the sea became a chaotic terror for the people. No one could defeat the power of the sea, but God Almighty. See, there's something going on here beyond just power over the elements. It's showing that Jesus has power over the sea. And the sea is so foreboding to people that do you know the Bible teaches that in the new heavens and the new earth, when God restores shalom, when Jesus restores things the way they ought to be, do you know the first thing, the first thing we learn about the new heaven and new earth? And it's found in Revelation 21, verse 1. This is what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. The first thing we learn about the new heaven and the new earth is that the sea, which represents uncontrollable, unmanageable chaos, which reminds us of our vulnerability like nothing else. It is no more. There is no sea to fear for the one who is in control is before us night and day, face to face. It's the first thing that John sees and comments on that comforts the people of God. Only God can deliver people from the sea. And that's what the story is about. Jesus has the power of God because Jesus is God. Jesus does not call on God to, for the winds to cease. Jesus does not pray to God for the winds to cease. Jesus speaks because he is God and says, peace be still, and the elements obey. The chaos hears and the chaos is stilled. The uncontrollable is controlled and the vulnerable are suddenly at peace before almighty God. What does it reveal about Jesus? It reveals that he is God, the Lord of the elements, the one who controls everything with the word of his power, the one who can bring settled, a state of settled peace in the midst of chaos. He's the one who is in control is what the story shows. Well, what does it reveal to us about the human predicament? Well, simply, it tells us we're not in control. It's a story that shows that we are vulnerable. And this is what is at the root of most of our fears. 
Jesus has revealed both by his power and his care in stopping the storm that, that, that he is the one who brings the answer to our fears. He asked them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? What do we learn about the disciples? Well, it's what we learn about us. We so frequently lack faith. We are so frequently gripped with fear. In his book, Running Scared, biblical counselor Ed Welch says that we can get at the core of most of our fears by understanding that fear talks to us. Fear speaks to us. And fear says very common things to all of us, though fears may be manifest in something um, like the fear of blinking lights or the fear of death, something that just grips us our whole life, the fear of uh, social fears and anxieties, all kinds of fears that most fears uh, are rooted in a few truths uh, or a few um, realities that fear emphasizes to us, really more like half-truths that fear speaks to us. Welch writes that fear leads us to believe that I am in danger. Fear says to us, I am in danger. It tells us that life is uncertain. It tells us that people will hurt us. It tells us that accidents will happen without any kind of warning. Fear tells us that we are in danger and then it connects to another idea. Fear says, I am vulnerable. He points out that danger points to the threats out there, but vulnerability points to me. It says that I am not in control. And this is one of our greatest fears, isn't it? The fear of not being in control. That's what lies behind the fear of flying. Or one of the things, I'm not in control. I'm, at the sub I'm in the subject, I'm the subject of someone else who is flying. The fear of your boss, you don't control your destiny at work. You don't control your future and your job. You perceive your boss to control it. So there's fear of him. The fear of going under for surgery. Is that not a tremendous place of having no control, being completely unconscious and vulnerable to the surgeon and his skills? The fear of being real and letting others know who we really are. We can't control the opinion of others, what they think of us, how they respond to us. So we, we, we seek to control what they know of us. We control the image they have of us. We act uh, in, in artificial ways. We lack authenticity because we fear that how they will respond if they really knew us. That puts them in control of knowing of us and responding to us. We are, in fact, vulnerable. We aren't in control. And that's the point of the story, which is supposed to bring comfort to us and not fear. Fear says, I need and I might not have. I need money, so I fear losing my job. I might not have enough for retirement, and so I fear. I need comfort, and so I fear physical pain. I need people's approval, and so I fear rejection. Fear says, I'm not in control. Fear says, I am vulnerable. Fear says, I might not get what I need. But the thing about fear that he writes is that fear prophesies to the Christian, fear prophesies a false future. Because fear imagines a terrible scenario. And then it imagines that scenario without God present. 
That's what fear does. It imagines a future suffering without God present, a terrible future circumstance where we are alone. And the truth is that the circumstance, which likely never occurs, that's the thing about fear. It tells us a story of what's going to happen, and it usually doesn't happen. Mark Twain famously said, I've known a lot of troubles in my day, and most of them never occurred. It's, it's what we imagine that's going to happen to us that is almost always worse than what actually happens to us. So it prophesies this terrible future to us that likely will not occur. But even if it does occur, even if it occurs worse than we imagine, God is with us. That's what fear never tells us. God will be with us. This story tells us that God is powerful. This story tells us that God cares. Fear will never tell you that. It will never tell you of God's presence. It will never tell you of God's care. And here is the power that in God's loving care and his presence, we can find peace in the midst of our fears. When we trust that God really is who he tells us he is, then we find peace for our fears. But so often we act like the disciples, I do. We act like the disciples. They wake Jesus up, verse 38. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Listen, their fear causes them, leads them, tempts them, tricks them, persuades them to believe something that's not true that Jesus doesn't care. That's what fear says. Fear prophesies a false future to them. Fear says we are dying and we will die. And that's true for all of us. Someday we will die, but not today in this boat, in this sea. That was a lie. They believed something that was not true. We will die. Fear convinces them that they are dying and what's worse, that God does not care that they are dying. He is not with them in their suffering. He does not care enough to help them or, or even, even if he doesn't intervene, at least to comfort them. He doesn't care enough to even comfort them. He's asleep. Jesus doesn't even care. That's what they feel. At their moment of greatest need, God went to sleep on me. He must not care. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe you feel that way right now. There's some area of in your life and you've asked for God's help. You've pleaded for God's help, but it just feels like he's asleep. And while he's sleeping, the boat's taken on water. The boat is taking on water and you're bailing as fast as you can, but the boat is taking on water. You may have a situation in your life right now where you're saying, God, where are are you? Are you able? Are you aware? Do you care? This is what it reveals about the human predicament to us, is that we are all subject to fear, that we all are vulnerable, that we all are not in control, but fear takes those realities and it plays it out in the worst scenario possible and tells us that God will not be with us in our time of need. And it leads us to believe things that aren't true about God. Do you even care that we are perishing? So what does it tell us about Jesus? What does it tell us about the human predicament? And what solution does it provide for the human predicament? 
Because Jesus is all-powerful, we can give him our fears. This is what the passage teaches, that we can trust that he is always there with us. When we feel our loss of control and our vulnerability, and then we imagine God unable to help us, or worse, unwilling or uncaring, then fear rules our hearts. But if we could really be certain If we could really be certain that God would never leave us, that he would never forsake us, that he would always be with us, helping us, either delivering us or comforting us in our struggle. If we knew that for a fact, then we wouldn't fear. If we knew that he's the kind of savior who leads us into storms, to be sure, that's one thing the passage teaches, that Jesus led them right into the storm. He's the one who says, let's go to the other side to begin with. That even if Jesus leads us into storms, he will also carry us through storms so that we are closer to him, so that we know him better because of the storm, then we wouldn't ultimately fear. If we could be certain of the outcome, If we could be certain of the outcome, if he had told them ahead of time what was going to happen, they could be certain of the outcome, then they wouldn't fear. Now, there's the adrenaline rush of danger that would have still been there with the storm. I get that. But there wouldn't have been the kind of panic, God doesn't even love me. God doesn't even care for me. If they could have been certain, their fears would have turned to peace. The storm scene is terrifying But listen, it ends with them having a revelation of who Jesus is. The story ends with them encountering God. The storm is terrible. Nobody wants to be in this storm. But the story ends with them personally observing a miracle, encountering Christ, knowing that he is God, finding out that he is Lord of the elements. Their picture of who Jesus is is developing. And they take a big step in chapter 4 here with Christ being revealed to them. God is with them in the boat, and they're filled with fear when they realize who it is that's with them. They are struck with awe. The fear of the storm is replaced with this breathtaking awe that God is in control and God is present. And unlike their fearful assumptions, God really cares. God really cares. That's the point of the story. So what fears are you facing this Christmas? We all face fears. What fears are you facing? If you weren't here last week, Rob brought a great message on conflict and conflict, how to deal with conflict, how how Christ brings peace to our conflict and how conflict arises at this time of the year frequently in our families in particular. If you weren't here, it'd be a great message to listen to. And if you're traveling to visit grandma and a lot of relatives where there's like a whole lot of cray cray going on in your Christmas, then you should listen to that message on the drive to grandma's house or aunt whoever's house. And, um, and it would help you. It really would help you. It helped me. So, but maybe your fear is the fear of conflict in your family. It's just wrestling. I mean, you're nervous you got acid reflux going on. You have trouble sleeping at night just because you're thinking about what's coming. And it's, it's, it's lifting up all these emotions of fear for you. Maybe you're facing that. Maybe it's the fear of what's going to happen when you get together with family, fear of being criticized again, 
fear of being judged again, fear of being rejected again, fear of one more Christmas longing for someone's affirmation that it never comes. Maybe Christmas makes you think of money and it's just a reminder that there's a fear of not having enough, fear of not having enough money. That's very real this time of the year or fear of how am I gonna pay back what I'm buying right now. Maybe you have something very serious this Christmas, your fear of a, of a relationship that's about to end. Maybe you're fearful of a health concern that you have or a health concern of someone you love that they have. Maybe you have a fear of depression. You know, this is a time when depression spikes in people. Counselors, psychologists, studies show that this is a time when, uh, when de depression, loneliness spikes. And maybe you have a fear of that dark cloud returning this year. Maybe you're okay now, but you have a fear of that dark cloud returning over you. Maybe it's a fear of falling back into an addiction, an addiction to alcohol, drugs, pornography, a fear of turning back and looking for an escape again because your heart hurts so badly. Maybe that's what you fear. Maybe you fear your spouse rejecting you or your child rejecting you. Maybe you fear for someone, you fear that someone you love is making bad decisions with their life, bad choices, harming himself, harming herself. Maybe you have a fear of someone you love falling away from the Lord. Maybe you have a fear of losing your job. Maybe you have a fear of someone finding out what you've done, someone finding out who you are, finding what you are really like. Maybe you have a fear of death. I don't know. There are many kinds of fears that can be raised at this time of year. And this text teaches us that there is someone greater than all that we fear. And he has come to bring peace in the midst of our countless uncertainties. He brings peace into chaos. He speaks and storms still. And even before he speaks, because he will speak in your life, he will speak peace be still. It might be at your death, but he will speak it at some point. You will know perfect peace and likely before then. But even in this, even in this account, before he speaks, while the storm is raging, he is still there and he cares. He is still there and he cares. They think he doesn't care. They think it's like he's not there, but he is there. And we know he cares, not just because he, he saved their lives, he saved them from drowning, not just because he said, peace be still. We know he cares for his disciples, not because he merely rescued them from a storm, but because he gave his life for them on a cross. The question that they posed to him, it's so telling. The question that they posed to him is answered not just in the stilling of the storm, but it's answered ultimately in the cross and resurrection. Look at what their question is, verse 38. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Perishing. And so what is his answer? Well, he stills a storm, but where does he really show that he cares for the perishing, 
Think about the most familiar verse likely in the New Testament, John 3, 16. God so loved the world, not absent, not uncaring, not flippant, not distant, not hostile. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish should not perish, but have eternal life. The very reason Jesus came is so that you would not perish. And they're saying, do you even care that we're perishing? And he will show that he cares by stilling the storm and saving their lives. But he will ultimately show that he cares by going to a cross and taking our sins upon him, receiving the judgment that was due us from the Father, being buried and on the third day rising again to bring ultimate peace peace with God. We were enemies of God, but now we, we have been brought near to God, Ephesians said that we read earlier. He is our peace. We are at peace with God. You were an enemy, but now a friend if you've believed. You are in union with Christ. You are a son or daughter adopted into his family. He loves you in the greatest, with the greatest expression imaginable, the sacrifice of his own son, and Jesus offering himself for us. The answer to do you care if we're perishing is yes. And when we go back to see there, when we go back to the cross, we find comfort and assurance for all the other places we feel like we're dying. Wherever you feel that you are drowning today and you're bailing and the water is filling, filling the boat, the place to go back to is the cross and see the Son of God giving his life for you. And if he, Father, gave his own Son, will he not along with him graciously give you all things? Romans 8.32. Fear tells a story. It prophesies a false future, and it tells a story, but we need to hear a different story. Fear says that you are in danger and that you are vulnerable, and that there is coming a situation where you will not have all that you need and you will not be enough. That's true, but it's a half-truth because fear also tells you that Jesus won't be there when you come to that circumstance. You're not in control, but the one who is control is in control will leave you. You're vulnerable, but the one who can protect you won't. You don't have what you need, but the one who is more than enough won't supply. That's what fear tells us. Fear says Jesus has all power. Even, I'm sorry, faith says that Jesus has all power, that even the wind and the sea obey him. Fear says he doesn't care. He's unable. You're on your own. Faith says even the elements obey him. Even the chaos of the sea must come under his command with just a word. The one in control loves me. That's what faith says. Faith says the one who is overall loves me and is with me. He is for me. He is leading me through the storm, but never leaving me in the storm. And even if my worst fear about my circumstances come to pass, this is why, this is why fear prophesies a false future. Because as a believer, even if the thing you fear the most happens, even if the circumstance occurs, even if your spouse leaves you, even if you lose your job, 
Even if it really is cancer, stage four cancer, even if the worst that you fear comes to you, you will not be alone. That's what fear, that's the lie of fear. You will not be alone. You, there will not be an uncaring God watching you suffer at a distance. Do you not even care that we're perishing? Yes, he cares. That's what the story reveals. The one with power will love you through your suffering. He will sustain you. He will strengthen you. And he will use all your sufferings for your good so that you may know him more intimately, so that you may experience him in a way that you could not and would not experience him apart from suffering. Fear will never tell you wonderful things about Jesus. Fear will never tell you about the, the embrace of the Father. Fear will never tell you about the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Fear will never tell you about the care of Jesus, but faith will. Faith is looking to him. And this is why Jesus says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? It's another way of translating this. Where is your faith? Where are you looking? Where are you trusting? Where are you leaning? Why are you afraid? I am with you. And by the way, don't worry about having enough faith. See, that's another fear. I fear I don't have enough faith. And so I'm in trouble. God will never help me because I don't have enough fear. I don't have enough faith. If I had enough faith, then everything would be okay. But I don't have enough faith. And so he's probably going to leave me. He probably will forsake me. He probably will abandon me. He probably doesn't care because I don't have enough faith. Listen, that is a new fear that you do not need from this message. Just look to Jesus. That's all you have to do is just look to Jesus. Don't be afraid of being weak in faith. Be aware of a strong Savior. I love what Tim Keller writes about this very passage. He says, Jesus is prompting them to see that the critical factor in their faith is not its strength, but its object. It's not the strength of your faith. It is the object of your faith that matters. Does anybody on this boat have adequate faith to merit a rescue from Jesus? Has anybody earned, has anybody earned God's intervention? Does Jesus wake up and say, wow, that is incredible faith. Well, of course, well, why don't you still the storm with that kind of faith? No, Jesus is, Jesus is, it is our confidence in him. It's not the amount of faith, but the object of faith. He has come to bring peace. He has come to destroy fear. Ultimately, he will destroy it. The new heaven and the new earth and the sea will be no more. In the meantime, we battle daily battle, sometimes hour by hour, sometimes minute by minute with our thoughts. God calls us to cast our cares on him. We talked about this in the series of peace. We did a message on peace and anxiety, and we just talked about casting our care on him. It applies here too. It's casting our fears upon him. It's talking to him, talking to him about our fear. It's, it's knowing him. It's talking to someone who can help us. Maybe this Christmas, the answer for you uh, will be found in speaking to someone else who can help, who can listen, who can give you good biblical insight and counsel a trusted friend, a Christian leader, a counselor, a pastor, someone who can help you, a parent. 
someone who knows the Lord and can listen. Sometimes I have found with fear that just saying it and getting it out there is huge. Now, I'm not talking about life crippling. If you've got a life dominating fear that rules your whole life, then you, you may need some, to get some serious intervention and help. Uh, there may be things going on with you. You may need to see a physician, see a biblical counselor, talk to someone who can give you direction. I'm not talking about the life crippling fear that so dominates you that you can't even function. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking more here, a little bit more run of the mill fears that we all experience. And what I found with those kinds of fears is oftentimes just exposing them to the light does a wonder to kill them. Because when I hear myself saying them out to somebody else, and I hear that person listen, a Christian friend listen compassionately and ask me some questions. And then I just start going, wow, this is, this is crazy. When I think about the love of Christ, the goodness, what I'm believing is just not true. And as I speak it out and expose it to the light, the, the deception of fear that something's going to happen to me and God won't help me, won't be with me, won't comfort me, will either deliver or comfort, one of the two. He will either deliver or sustain. Those are the options. Even if I die, I'm delivered. Those are the options. He will help me. He will, he does care for me. And to help someone help me see that, remind me of this faithfulness in my life. God has always done that. He's always delivered me or sustained me. I'm here today. You're here today. You've always been delivered or sustained or you wouldn't be here. He's always done that. So sometimes just saying it exposes it. Fear, uh, like fear is like weeds that grow in our hearts. Fears just grow in darkness. But when they're exposed to light, it kills them. And many, many times they shrivel. So when you sense fear this Christmas, if it's a conflict, go back and listen to what was shared last week. If it's an anxiety, we had a message on that two weeks ago. If it's some kind of fear, return to this story because the truth of the story is God wants us to see who Jesus is. He wants us to see his power. He wants us to walk away aware that he controls all and the one who controls all is with us and loves us, cares for us. And he is our Return to this story this Christmas and meditate on it. Think about it and consider who the Lord is. He brings peace to our fears. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.